This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Susanna, Sam, and Caleb. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And at the end, we'll wrap things up with a few fun questions. Now let's get started. We'll begin with a series of serious questions. And in this episode, all three of these questions come from Susanna. Susanna's first question, should we heap burning coals on people's heads? Wouldn't that hurt? Of course, Susanna is thinking of the Apostle Paul's instructions in Romans chapter 12. In verse 20 of chapter 12, he says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And those words of Paul are actually a quote from the Old Testament, from Psalm 25. So is the Apostle Paul saying that you should dump burning coals on people's heads? Well, no. Obviously, if you were to dump burning coals on a person's head, literally, you would burn their head. That would be really painful. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, that idea is used literally, and it is very painful. So if you look at Psalm 140, you'll see that it describes burning coals falling on those who have been cast into the fire for punishment. And that's definitely a bad thing. But when Paul uses these words in Romans 12, he's employing them as a figure of speech. So heaping burning coals on someone's head is a kind of metaphor. And probably the closest equivalent that we have in everyday English, is the phrase, killing them with kindness. So when we talk about killing someone with kindness, we don't mean literally killing them. What we mean is showing kindness to someone who doesn't like you is a way of overcoming that dislike. So in this case, heaping burning coals on someone's head, the way you do that is by showing love to that person, even though They're your enemy. And when you show that love, it demonstrates not only your love, but also it demonstrates the folly of your enemy's hatred. And sometimes in doing this, you turn that hatred around. So if you're wondering, should you dump burning coals on the head of people like siblings, for example? Uh, The answer is no. Don't try that at home. Uh, Paul's using a figure of speech to mean we should be kind and loving even towards our enemies, that we should do good things to those people who aren't doing very good things to us. Our next question is this. Why did Saul change his name? Why did Saul change his name? As you know, in the book of Acts, there's this guy named Saul, and he's a Pharisee, and he's involved in persecuting the church. And at a certain point, Saul is called Paul and becomes the Apostle Paul that uh, we're familiar with, who's written so many epistles of the New Testament. So why did he change his name? Well, here's the funny thing. 
As a matter of fact, he didn't change his name. If you look in Acts chapter 13, you go to verse 9, you see that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says that Saul was also called Paul. Saul was also called Paul, not that he changed his name from Saul to Paul, but that people called him by both names. Now, there are people in the Bible whose names are changed. God changed Abram's name to Abraham, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jesus did the same thing. He gave the apostle Simon a nickname, Peter, and we know him better as Peter or Simon Peter. But the Bible doesn't actually say that Saul's name was changed to Paul. What's actually happening there is something else. So Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Latin or Greek name, his Roman name. And that was very common for people during this day, for uh, Hebrew people, especially, as in Paul's case, uh, Roman citizens, to have both a Hebrew name and a Roman name. So he actually went by both, and they might have been used interchangeably depending on whether he was talking to Gentiles or talking to his fellow Jews. But it makes sense, considering the fact that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, that he would use his Gentile or his Roman name in his ministry. Now, a third serious question from Susanna is this, in heaven, what do we eat? Great question. So, a couple of things to think about. First, when we die, if we are in Christ, if our trust is in Christ, then the Bible says that the Spirit leaves the body to go to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, when the Spirit is separated from the body, I'm not sure that you would actually need to eat, because Eating is a physical or a bodily need. So I'm not sure if in the intermediate state, when spirits are in the presence of God, that they do a lot of eating. However, after the resurrection of the body, when the spirit and the body are reunited, then we certainly will eat. And we do have descriptions of, for example, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where people are clearly eating. There's a fruit present at the uh, New Jerusalem, and there's water to drink. So we have that sense of these bodily needs continuing, which makes perfect sense because they are human needs. Right Before the fall, Adam and Eve ate and drank. And so we, as human beings, in the new heaven and the new earth, can expect to eat and drink as well. So the question is, what will we eat? Well, I'd like to think that the answer is Popeye's fried chicken, because I think it's the best food in the world. But because there will be no death, I'm not so sure that's an option, because chickens won't be being killed in the new creation. So, I'm not clear on that. I suspect that we will eat things that don't have to be killed in order to be eaten. And that's as as good an answer as I can give you on what we will eat in heaven. Now it's time for the big question, which comes this time also from Susanna. Here's the big question. 
Do you celebrate Passover? Do you celebrate Passover? Now, as you know, Passover was a feast that was instituted by God in the Old Testament as a way to remember how he had delivered his people from Egyptian bondage. Now, that Egyptian bondage was a picture of the people's bondage to sin and their deliverance from that sin. Now, in the Westminster Confession, we learn that Passover is one of the the many rites and rituals of the Old Testament that had the purpose of foresignifying Christ. Now, what does that mean? To foresignify means to signify, to be a sign of or a symbol of. Uh, To foresignify means to be a symbol of something beforehand. So Passover was a symbol of Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ came. In fact, Passover, of all of the Old Testament feasts and rites and rituals, is in the top two when it comes to importance. Circumcision is the other one. Now, both of those top two signs in the Old Testament receive in the New Testament an equivalent sign. Now, even though in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus, things are radically simplified because the mystery of of who will be the Messiah has now been revealed, there are still some signs that we are given in the New Testament that are signs of our covenant inclusion. So, the New Testament equivalent of circumcision in the Old Testament is baptism. So, circumcision's equivalent is baptism. Now, what about Passover? Well, the New Testament equivalent of Passover is the Lord's Supper. It's the communion meal. Now, at Grace, as you know, we celebrate communion Every Lord's Day, every Sunday morning after our worship service, once we've heard the gospel proclaimed in the sermon and the preaching of the word, we see kind of a culmination, like our our service is highlighted by the celebration of communion, of the Lord's Supper. And what that means is we celebrate Passover every Sunday. So, if the question is, do you celebrate Passover? The answer is yes. Every Lord's Day, we celebrate Passover. Now, I know there are some people who, in order to make their Christian faith feel more authentic, like to go back to the Old Testament and, let's say, uh, borrow some of those rituals and rites that the New Testament says have been fulfilled and reintroduce them into their worship. Uh, Sometimes they borrow from modern Judaism in order to do something similar. In fact, I was reading an interview recently with a Jewish rabbi who described Christians who were asking for advice on how to host a Seder at their church uh, the same way that Jesus would have done it. 
And the rabbi kind of laughed and said, well, Jesus didn't have a Seder. It didn't exist at that point because it had developed later on in the history of Judaism. So oftentimes when we attempt to go back and, and introduce these rites and rituals, we don't even have enough understanding of the history to know what was authentic to the Old Testament or even to Jesus's day. So instead of trying to make things more Old Testament, what we need to do is focus on the means of grace, the word and sacrament that Jesus has instituted. And that means understanding how communion is the fulfillment of the promise of Passover. And that's why when we celebrate communion every Sunday, we declare Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Those words are a quotation of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and they're a reminder to us that what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is the same deliverance that was foresignified in the Passover feast of the Old Testament. Before we close, let's take a look at a few fun questions. First question comes from Caleb, and here it is. What is your favorite book of the Bible? That is a tough question to answer. Typically, my favorite book happens to be whichever book I'm preaching at the moment. So right now, my favorite book of the Bible would be Zechariah. But if I had to name an all-time favorite, I think it would probably be the book of Hebrews. Our next question is from Sam. Sam asks, during the songs at church, would it be better if we just play piano or just play guitars? Now, this is a follow-up to an earlier question about instrumental music versus singing. And when I was asked that question, I said that you could worship without instruments, but you couldn't worship without singing. So I thought singing obviously would be higher, right? It would be higher on that uh, hierarchy of, of essentials in worship. In this case, the question seems to be, uh, does it matter which instruments we use? And are some instruments better than others? Would it be better to play piano or guitar or vice versa? And to be honest with you, I don't think one instrument is better than another in the eyes of God or in terms of suitability for worship. I think the main thing is skillfulness and sincerity, not which instrument is being played. Our final question comes from Caleb, who asks, who is the fastest, strongest, and most athletic elder? Well, this is a great question. Unfortunately, we have never had a competition between our ruling elders, Ira, Dave, and Lyle, to find out which of them is strongest or fastest or most athletic. But maybe at a future church picnic, that would be something we could organize. Of course, I'm an elder too, a teaching elder, and I think we can say 
with certainty that whoever is the fastest or the strongest or the most athletic, it's definitely not me. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.